Hey guys, what's going on? This is Joe Mambu from Let's Be Real Sports. And um, I am here with episode 96 of Let's Be Real. This episode is called Dennis the Menace. And uh, if you don't know what it's about, it's basically we're continuing the coverage of the Last Dance documentary, which during this self-quarantine and pandemic has been very insightful and very enlightening on the 97-98 Bulls uh, documentary. Uh, one of the things I do love about this documentary, though, it just doesn't talk about the 97-98 season. You get a little bit of background story. Uh, we got some background of Jordan, uh, Scottie Pippen, and even Dennis Rodman himself. And episode three did a lot to feature a, a lot of uh, Dennis Rodman and getting to know his inner workings and whatnot and what makes him tick, you know. Um, we get to learn a little bit about Phil Jackson's playing career with the New York Knicks in which the Knicks, the last time, uh, that was the only last time they won a championship. Uh, Phil Jackson was a part of those teams. And um, we get to learn about the the originator of the triangle offense, uh, Tex Winters. I know when we think about the triangle offense most time, we think just about Phil Jackson because he implemented with Michael Jordan and then he into he implemented it with uh Kobe Bryant and, and those uh and Shaq Lakers. Uh, uh what I like though, uh what's the documentary touch is that Doug Collins um uh, actually had a chance to implement the triangle. Uh Doug Collins came in the time where the Bulls was abysmal. Uh, I remember uh, in the documentary, they, they they said that he chewed his gum into a powder and Michael Jordan comes and gives him a, a cup of water and basically tells Doug, like, hey, I'm not going to let you lose your first game as head coach. And Michael Jordan proceeded to go ahead and drop 10 points uh, to get that win in Doug Collins' first game. Um, the... I know the document documentary makes it seem like Doug Collins was, you know, like the Bulls were just on an uprise with Doug Collins, and that is true. Uh, the Bulls were failing pretty well. Uh, prior to Doug Collins getting fired, they actually lost to the Bad Boys Pistons in 1989 in uh, Game Six. So you know the Bulls was on an uprise, and they were making the right headway uh, into becoming in that elite conference, uh, well, that elite conversation of being in the Eastern Conference, uh, you know, but um, at the 1990 season, um, Reinsdorf, which uh, is the owner of the Bulls at the time, I don't, I don't doubt he's, I don't, he, he was the owner of the Bulls at the time, fired um, Doug Collins. And we all know from that 1988 season, how much uh, Doug Collins rode Jordan, right? You got to understand Doug Collins was relatively a hire out of nowhere. Um, he was a broadcaster once he retired from his playing days, which he played for the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, so he was relatively young, and he wasn't the best fit on the young impressionable minds of the Bulls players, especially Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant, who, you know, got drafted in 1987 and, you know, were, were, were there to make the Bulls into a prominent powerhouse. Uh, 
Phil Jackson did not I mean not Phil, but Doug Collins he he kind of predicated his offense on Jordan, and that showed in the 1990-1988 season when he moved Jordan to point guard, right? Because it was kind of like Jordan's kind of like the uh, ultimate security blanket, right? Like he's the ultimate security blanket. You can always go to him, and he'll always be able to get that bucket or get the bucket or, or get you the bucket that may lead to the other bucket or, or do something on defense. Jordan was just the ultimate cop out, right? It's like when somebody's playing 2K and is like, all right, well, let's pick the 97, 98 Bulls. Like majority of the time, unless the 2K players like really skilled, you're going to lose against that team because that team is just a, just a powerhouse of a team. And um, Doug Collins in 1988, was kind of doing that. He 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 moved Jordan to he moved Jordan to the point guard position, uh, which Jordan was averaging thirty five points and shooting fifty three point five percent from the field. Uh, nineteen eighty eight man was a ridiculous year for Michael Jordan. Man, he was doing some amazing things and just the accolades that he had garner in that season was insane right so he he goes ahead and he wins mvp he wins all-star mvp he wins defensive player of the year and he goes on to win uh the slam dunk competition like this is all oh and scoring champions so jordan did this all in one season this is how hard doug collins was riding um michael jordan and the thing was is that the the Bulls owner at the time saw that. He saw that Jordan was running through the ground. Now, I know, you know, minute restrictions and uh, load management is the thing in today's NBA. But, you know, that wasn't really happening with Jordan. And, not, you know, Doug Collins was a player himself, right? So players respect coaches who were players. Pretty much sure why freaking – what's his name? Uh, that guy – LeBron's old coach from Cleveland, the one that Iverson stepped over, Tyron Lue is the head coach because players respect former players who are now coaches because they could see the game. And I get it. The problem with Doug Collins is that he lived a fiery lifestyle and he had insecurities. Uh, he wanted to be the Mike Ditka of the Chicago Bulls. Uh, you got to remember the 85 Bears that, you know, they – Last time they won a Super Bowl, that defense was a powerhouse, and Mike Ditka was the herald of that team. And, you know, Doug Collins saw himself being in the same city, being a, you know, being a young, brash head coach who really had no coaching experience, who came from broadcasting, who was good looking. Listen, he was uh, he was ready to make his mark on the Bulls, and he did. He did make his mark on the Bulls. From 1986 to 1989, the, the Bulls – had steadily improved. Um, but the owner, I think it's Jerry Reinsdorf, he, he, he knew that the writing was kind of on the wall. And if you can kind of compare it in today's situation, is um, the coach you could compare that to with Doug Collins, which is funny because he played for the Sixers, would be Brett Brown and the Philadelphia 76ers right now, who was a great coach for the process. But the problem is, is that I don't know if he could get them 
playing winning basketball. And when I say them, I'm talking about Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, right? Why is there not somebody developing Ben Simmons' jump shot so he could become an all-world threat, you know? Why is Joel Embiid on the perimeter so long, you know, taking threes or, you know, getting the ball from the perimeter and uh, trying to score from there when he's such an inside presence, right? These are all things that Brett Brown is kind of needs to fix, right, as being the head coach. I know you have assistants that deal with things individually, but um, I, I feel like this is the same problem that Doug Collins had. Uh, even though they lost in the Eastern Conference Finals in Game Six to the to the Pistons in 1989, I mean the Bad Boy Pistons were they weren't even playing basketball. If 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 you ask me, they they weren't playing basketball at all. Like you know, they talk about hard nose, hard grinding, and it's like in that documentary, you know, I, I just see elbows and clothesline. Like you know, they're like the Legion of Doom or something. And I'm thinking in my head, like, why is this even a thing, right? Why are guys fighting like this? And I get it, you know, like, you know, I, I get the, the machismo, you know, but at the same time, like, let, let's just play basketball and the, the Bulls, I mean, not the Bulls, but the, the Detroit Pistons certainly weren't playing basketball. I don't even care if that was basketball for that time. That's just, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, you're not playing basketball. Uh, so, you know, the bad boy Pistons, I get it. You know, they wanted, you know, they good. They were good, but they were beating up on teams. And, you know, the league at the time was trying to put Jordan ahead of everyone else. You know, it was, you know, the, the hierarchy was magic and, and, and bird, of course, especially with those rivalries and them winning multiple championships. And Jordan was the new kid on the block. Uh, Doug, like I said, Doug Collins did a hell of a job from 1986 and 1989, especially giving Jordan that freaking career year in 88. You know, a guy was drafted in 84, fourth year in the league to win MVP. And man, it's, um, it's, he, he did pretty well for himself, but he couldn't, you know, he couldn't get them to the finish line. And I get that. Uh, and then the thing about Doug Collins as well is that he kind of, you know, there was a little bit of egoism with Doug Collins. You know, he he started alienating his assistants, and um, that's never cool, right? That's that's never cool to kind of alienate your assistants. Uh, he kind of he kind of berated he kind of berated uh, Tex Winter, right? Tex Winter, who was the originator of the triangle offense, right? Which won Jordan and and Kobe multiple championships. Uh, he was threatened of uh, by Phil Jackson, right? Phil Jackson just coming in, doing his job, being assistant to Doug Collins. Doug Collins was really threatened. Like he said, he knew in his second year that Phil would become the head coach of the, of the Bulls, right? Because you you can see it right there was like there's a report from like July of 1989 after the season was done and it talks about how Doug Collins was once a player's coach but then it became uh him berating the players uh n- trading Charles Oakley and and for Bill Cartwright but never really using Bill Cartwright the first pick Will Purdue first round pick and Will Purdue him not really, you know, using Will Purdue to his potential. 
And it was just things that Doug Collins was doing that Jerry Reinsdorf did not care for. Uh, He even, and this is the crazy thing, right? Like Jerry Krause is looked as the villain because essentially Jerry Krause broke up the dynasty in 97 and 98 because he didn't want to play. He did not want to pay Pippen or Jordan or Rodman, the Chicago Bulls big three, $81 million, which at that time, ridiculous amount of money, right? Now you'd be like, you got couple guys on the roster who make that but you know three guys pay that amount of money in that time it's it's a little bit ridiculous in 97 98 if the first two episodes made jerry Krause look like a villain for breaking up the the bulls organization that, that big three it most certainly in episode three and four of the last dance made doug collins kind of look like a villain right because that's the thing. It's like he's alienating coaches, his assistants. He's there's reports from the Chicago Tribune that like so the the date is July ninth, nineteen eighty nine. There's reports that he is giving Phil Jackson the silent treatment, and he is quick to uh, kind of write off Phil Jackson's approach to him, right? Uh, and this is the thing. In the documentary, even talks about him kind of having Tex Winter, who, you know, was one of his assistants, kind of sit away from him during games, you know? And then he's sitting on the other side and, and giving his info and his opinion. Uh, and, and so Doug Collins alienates himself. He's like, you know what? I, I'm not trying to run this triangle. We've been working through Jordan, and this is what we're going to do. And Jordan out as a competitor – Listen, Jordan, as a competitor, I get it. Jordan was like, there's a reason why Jordan in this documentary, he talks about loving Doug Collins. And I get it because Jordan is a competitor. He's the ultimate competitor. He's a fiery dude. And obviously he wants the ball in his hands all the time at the end of games. But if you didn't realize, right, Jordan, the ultimate competitor, even realizes when he was getting used too much. And in the, after that 1988 season and where Michael Jordan was having point guard duties when he just won every award you could possibly win that year, he kind of axed out of the role, right? And because, listen, Jordan was superhuman, but even he needed to take a breather and take a break. And he realized that after the 88 season by asking Doug Collins to take him out of that point guard role, and go back to the two car two guard position, right? So the owner at the time, Jerry Reinsdorf, he realizes he realizes this, and he's like, "Hey, man, listen, you did a wonderful job, Doug, as being the head coach for the Bulls, but your alienation, your criticism of players, is becoming detrimental to the team." He even Doug Collins even goes after Jerry Krause's job. Crazy thing about that, if you don't know, Jerry Krause was the one who vouched for Doug Collins. And then what happened is Jerry Reinsdorf was against it because, listen, Doug wasn't a Doug didn't have much coaching experience and he was a broadcaster. Right. Jerry Krause vouches for uh, Doug Collins. And then later, Doug Collins wants to go after his job. Right. So Jerry's like, hey, man, that's kind of shady. This is not what you do, especially if this man vouches for you. And you sit in in a five-hour interview with the owner of the Chicago Bulls, and 
you you say you're going to do all these things. You say you're not going to ride Jordan like you did, and, and you do. You totally do, and I get it because Jordan is that mule. Like, he, he will get you to there. But he can only do so much on his own, right? Uh, and that's why Scotty and Horace came in the 87 draft, and Jerry Krause did a phenomenal job of, of drafting those two guys. So then we get off that Doug Collins topic, we talk about the Bulls, you know, next to line head coach, Phil Jackson. And Phil Jackson, who kind of, even though he was the top assistant, he kind of he kind of deferred to uh, Tex Winter, who was the originator of the triangle offense. If you don't know who Tex Winter is, I kind of just said it, but he was head coach at Kansas State for a very long time. Uh, he originated the triangle uh, offense, even consulted for the Lakers 2008-2009 championship. So Phil Jackson was always with this guy. So Phil Jackson works closely with Tex Winter, right? And this causes paranoia for Doug Collins because you can see the writing on the wall, right? Phil's philosophy is that he wants to get the ball out of Jordan's hands more, right, and make the team a full ensemble, right? Because it's like you have Jordan and you have Pippen sometimes who's been used, but he's not really being used to his best ability. And and that's the thing, Scottie Pippen, when he was in Arkansas, he was, you know, he had like guard handle, right? That's the thing. But then he grew and he became like the 6A, 6.9.4, right? So when Phil working close with Tex, uh, you know, when Phil became the head coach of the Chicago Bulls, he worked closely with Tex Winter, and Tex Winter then became his assistant. Phil used Scottie Pippen more in that point forward role, right? Because this is the thing. The triangle gives you options, right? And you want to find smart, high-quality, high IQ, high IQ guys to run this offense. The Phil Jackson knew and Tex Winter knew that we can do more as a team. We can not do more as a team, but we can accomplish more if we use the other players besides Jordan, right? Jordan's a phenomenal player, but everyone needs help. Texan Phil knew this. So what they did was they implemented the triangle, which gives you three options. I think it was like 33 options, right? on the offense and getting other guys involved. And listen, this is the thing. Michael Jordan wasn't favorable of this offense because he's like, why does John Paxson need it? Why does Bill Cartwright need it? Why does, why am I not getting the ball in clutch moments? But the, the, the triangle, what it does offensively and is it opens the floor, right? So people think about the, how the Golden State Warriors changed their offense, right? Changed the offense for the league where it was like more space movement. You stretch out the the floor to like way beyond the three-point limit where threes becomes more effective than twos. Mid-range is like kind of obsolete, not really needed. Like this is how Golden State changed the game in this current era. What Tex winners and Phil Jackson did with that triangle offense is the same thing. It, it changed the league, right? What it did for defenses now is like you constantly have to look for where Jordan's at. You can't no longer zero on him at the wing because you you think about it, 
the Bulls had not the Bulls, but the Pistons. They had some they had some Jordan rules, right? They had some Jordan rules, and it was simple. You know, the Jordan rules uh, were simple. Um, when he got to the t- when he got to the wing, you just pushed him to the elbow, right? They would never let him go baseline, and I, that's the thing. When he said, when they said, wouldn't let him go baseline. I always say when I'm playing basketball, the baseline is an extra defender. So I would, you know, I would never use the baseline because I could go out of bounds. But, you know, Jordan's a different animal and I play YMCA basketball, so I should just shut up. But uh, and then when he's on the top, you make him go left. You know, Jordan's right handed. uh, So his dominant hand's right. Obviously, you want to go to your dominant hand when you when when you're playing basketball. And when he got the ball in the low post, they just trapped him on top. So the Bulls, you know, Detroit, and then Detroit got a lot. Detroit got away with a lot of fouling and punching and bullshit that they called, you know, hard nosed basketball, which is has nothing to do with basketball. Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf had the foresight to see, even though the Bulls had lost in 1989 in, in Game Six of the Eastern Conference Final, uh, that a change needed to be made. And when he made the change to Phil uh, from Doug, it was a great improvement. Scotty Pippen improved. Horace Grant improved. And uh, it was a good thing for the Bulls, right? So now you get you have the, uh, the Bulls. You have the Bulls playing against the Lakers, right? And then all of a sudden, because the game plans change, it's just not the Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. You know what I mean? Like, it's like it's a full ensemble where, you know, you got Jack John Paxson going on. And, you know, Jordan's looking at Jordan's looking at Phil like, what? But Jordan has such respect for Phil, even though he loves Doug. He has such respect for Phil. He's like, listen, all right, let's do this. And John Paxson just gets hot, super hot, right? And and, and the Bulls end up beating the uh, Lakers in five or six. Or I think it was five, but Lakers end up beating the Bulls. In, I mean, I'm sorry, not the Lakers, but the Bulls end up beating the Lakers in five. You know, and Jordan is, is crying and he's hugging. And, you know, his dad is there, which was a touching moment, bro. A little eye, you know, tear to my eye a little bit. And then he hugs Michael. Uh, he hugs Magic Johnson. You know what I'm saying? And everybody's looking at Jordan. And they're like, wow, man. Like, I didn't know Jordan had this uh, emotion. Uh, we, all we know Jordan for is being angry and yelling. Michael Jordan has all this, you know, this ton of emotion when he wins. And, hey, you know, that's the end goal is mainly to win. It's mainly to win the championship. So when Jordan finally broke through, I know, you know, it had to be everything because before he was better than Magic and Bird, but, you know, he didn't know how to get his teammates involved. You know, kind of the same things they said about Kobe Bryant, but it's a learning process. You know, at this point in time, he's, what, seven years in the league. Uh, Bad Boy Pistons was a tough tough-nosed team, and they had Dennis Rodman. And that's actually what I want to touch on next, the relationship between Dennis Rodman and um, Phil Jackson. This is what makes Phil Jackson so great, right? Not only that he's willing to listen to his assistants, but Dennis Rodman, man, was a menace. As we know from his uh, Pistons years when he used to torment Scotty and um, – Michael Jordan, his days on San Antonio, just his wild life off the court and the antics that he used to do. 
The crazy thing is that Phil embraced all of it, though. That was the crazy thing, right? Like, you got this dude, Phil Jackson, who his family background is, is a little different from uh, Dennis Rodman, right? But he embraced him. And, you know, people look at Phil like a hippie or whatever. He kind of was. Like, you, you know, the documentary did a lot to kind of, well, didn't really do a lot, but you was kind of able to see why uh, Phil and Scott, um, not Scotty, but Dennis were able to, to connect with one in, one another, you know. They both have uh, backgrounds and experiences with the Native American philosophy, uh, we all know uh, Phil Jackson for his Zen philosophy that, you know, was popular through his coaching years. Um, and Phil was just different. He wasn't really a, a militant. He was con- he, he was very empathetic and lenient. Uh, and this showed greatly when Scottie Pippen missed 35 games because, you know, he had to get surgery on his foot. And the Bulls were doing the Bulls were doing pretty not pretty bad, but they weren't winning at the pace they were usually accustomed to. And listen, what's his name had to be a model citizen, right? Like even Jordan talks about it, how, um, you know, Dennis never came in the room and said sorry. But uh, Dennis asked him for a cigar. Right. And um, he knew and, and Jordan knew from then that, you know, he was sorry and that he was going to get the shit right. And he did. And for the next the next game, like uh, the next uh, for like a month or so. Right. Till Scotty came back. Listen, uh, Dennis Rodman was a he, he, he held the, he was the glue for the Bulls. Right. He had he had to take the most responsibility outside of Jordan. And he, he did his thing. Before uh, Rodman went to that room, to Michael Jordan's room, the Bulls were 8-7, and seven, right? And it's crazy because the, the previous season, the Bulls didn't lose their seventh game until their 56th game. So the Bulls were definitely missing what you would call it, Scottie Pippen in that uh, season. But Dennis Rodman got the ship right and was a stand-up citizen for the Bulls. And listen... It must have been hard on Robin because even Robin talks about it in the documentary that basketball was never really a big thing for him, right? Like, it he had to find motivation to play the game. It's not like some dudes who watch Mike or this generation who watch Kobe or LeBron and they're like, yo, I'm just inspired to play basketball. Dennis Robin, that was not the case. Uh, so, you know, he always had to find motivation. And Phil understood this. And there was a time where um, Dennis Rodman goes on to Las Vegas and, you know, Jordan is against it, you know, Phil's like, yo, I could give you 48 hours. Jordan's like, tells Phil, hey, Phil, if you let this guy go, he ain't coming back. You might as well just lose him. But Jordan gives his blessing. Phil, Phil allows it. And Rodman goes for this what was supposed to be 48 hours, but ended up being more like 88 hours. And the crazy thing was is that, you know, they they actually had to end up go getting Rodman. And Carmen Electra talks about it in the documentary. But listen, once Rodman comes back, he's a model. He's a model citizen. You know, he needed that time away because what he needed to do on the court took so much out of him. And Phil understood that, right? Phil was great 
because he was a team builder. He wasn't alienating people. He was empathetic and he was lenient, right? And he was able to talk up to Michael. And that was the key thing where Doug was a Michael guy and Doug would ride Michael and try to, uh, you know, just make Michael happy. Bill was about the team and uh, that showed. Um, and they talk about it in the documentary with the relationship between him and um, Dennis Rodman, especially him knowing that, you know, the tribe, the Native American tribe, they talk about the Hioka where, Den- you know, the Hioka means a uh, backward walking person. I might be butchering it, but it was something along those lines. Phil understood that. And the, the, the great thing about Phil Jackson was that he looked at players as people, right? He didn't just look at them as basketball players. That's their job. That's what they do. But that's not all there are. People are multifaceted. And you want to be able to understand those people to bring the best out of them. And that trip that Phil Jackson uh, allowed Rodman to go on shows that. And it get, I got a lot of respect for Phil because I always just thought it was the talent that he had. Michael, Pippen, Kobe, Shaq. But listen, it takes it takes a lot to... Um, to feed those egos. So uh, Phil Jackson did a tremendous job, and I can't wait for uh, episode five and six tonight. It should be amazing. It should be pretty dope. And uh, next week I'll have a uh, some uh, talk about that again, episode five and six. I definitely will bring you that. But listen, I want to thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Let's Be Real. This was pretty dope. I love talking about this documentary. If you want, make sure to hit us up on our Facebook page at Let's Be Real Sports Blog. Uh, you can also hit us up on YouTube at Let's Be Real Sportscast. You can check you can check out the videos there. Uh, make sure if you got any questions and comments, hit us up at lbrstalk at gmail.com. That is lbrstalk at gmail.com with questions, comments, or other topics you may want us to discuss uh, on the next episode. And um, that's another episode in the bag. Peace. This has been a Gifted Sounds podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. For more podcasts, please visit giftedsounds.com. Mm-hmm.